Hello everyone, I'm your host Kate, a research fellow at the NATO Association of Canada. Welcome to a special feature podcast on security in Canada's Arctic, brought to you by the NATO Association of Canada, an independent non-governmental organization that aims to foster a better understanding of NATO's goals and Canada's role in the Alliance. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Andrew Bresnahan, a resident of Baffin Island, the Director of Circumpolar Affairs with the North American and Arctic Defense and Security Network, and an academic expert on Arctic issues, holding master's degrees in both science and public health, a doctorate in medicine, and currently reading international affairs at King's College London. My second guest today is Aaron O'Toole, a Canadian Member of Parliament for the Federal Riding of Durham. Since his election in 2012, Aaron has served as the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of International Trade and later as the Minister of Veterans Affairs in the Conservative government, then Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and leader of the Conservative Party from 2020 to 2022. Aaron is also a Royal Canadian Air Force veteran, lawyer, and a leading voice in Canada's Parliament on Arctic issues. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for the invitation, Kate, and it's good to join you and Andrew for an important discussion. Yeah, thanks. And Andrew, thank you as well for making time for this interview. Thank you, Kate. It's a pleasure and, and a real honor to share uh, share company with, with Aaron O'Toole. Fantastic. So, Andrew, you emphasize the importance of understanding the multifaceted nature of Arctic issues in a fantastic keynote speech you delivered at the North American and Arctic Defense and Security Network's Emerging Leaders Week back in July 2022. What made you want to specialize in studying the Arctic region? I think first, because it's home, um, both for me personally, I, I was born on, on the north coast of Labrador, uh, married into a family from, from Iqaluit, Nunavut. But the Arctic is 40% of Canada's landmass. Um, Inuit Nunangat, the Inuit homelands alone, are 30% of Canada's landmass and about half of Canada's coastline. Um, so I think for a, a lot of Canadians, um, sometimes a shift in thinking from, from frontier to homeland um, is due. And, and of course, you know, Canada's Arctic is home to, to many kind, resilient, remarkable peoples, Inuit, Inu, Dene, Cree, settler peoples from, from various parts of the world. Um, and, and, you know, it's a vibrant and globally significant ecology that's warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. But internationally, we also live in a really fascinating and globally significant neighborhood uh, filled with allies and, and adversaries. And so if you imagine looking from you know looking at the globe from from the top you can see we've got you know our closest allies and friends the united states bordering us um in alaska we have um you know greenland and the kingdom of denmark very very close to us um the nordic countries with with the highest human development indices in the world we have a lot to learn from um and also an increasingly bellicose russian neighbor um, so a lot of a lot of connections, geoeconomic connections, geopolitical connections. Um, it's it's a it's a way of of looking at the world that's both grounded in in who we are as Canadians, and also what what matters um, across the whole planet. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, so, Aaron, how about you? What interested you in Canada's Arctic? Well, I think it was. Probably my time as a junior officer in the Royal Canadian Air Force, the first time I was ever north of 60, the first time I ever uh, visited one of our territories, actually just before Nunavut officially became Nunavut, it was still part of the Northwest Territories, 
was uh, with a Hercules flight into a Kaluit. And, you know, flying in the north gave you an appreciation of what Andrew just mentioned. Literally, um, we're sea to, to sea to sea. Most of our coastline is in the Arctic. Uh, most of our land mass, you know, in a, in a relative sense, is in our northern territories. Yet, because our population is condensed along the U.S. border in the south, there's an appreciation of northern issues and Canada's Arctic, but not a deep understanding of it. And I think anyone that gets the privilege to travel there, whether, um, you know, through the Air Force like I did or through work or through, you know, vacation or really fall in love with the people, the vastness of the land and the great potential. So um, I've been fortunate to to travel there a few times as a member of parliament and help run a study on our, our sovereignty as a nation. But I think we really need to do more to make sure that we safeguard our sovereignty, partner more with Inuit and, and First Nations and, and development corporations to bring responsible opportunity to the people there because there's a real disconnect and people often feel abandoned by the South. So it was the Air Force that 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 first took me to the North, but it was really my my time in politics where I've tried as an MP from Southern Ontario to make sure that Northern issues were front and center. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, both of you did mention how vast the uh, Canadian Arctic is, and I think it is really uh, important for listeners and and every Canadian out there to sort of be more aware that, yeah, we are uh, also located north of the tree line and, and into the Arctic. So it's a, an amazing spot. Um, so, Aaron, uh, you host a podcast called Blue Skies, which I highly recommend to listeners uh, out there. Um, and in an episode in May 2022, you interviewed the president and CEO of Arctic 360, Dr. Jessica Shadian, about Canada's lacking Arctic strategy. You've also been quite outspoken about the importance of defending and developing Canada's Arctic. So why do you think Canadians should be concerned with Arctic security issues? Well, I'm glad you listened, Kate, and I'm glad to talk about that. And I, I appreciate Jessica's leadership at the Bill Graham Center. You know, we just lost Bill Graham, a great Canadian, uh, not long ago. And he uh, uh, helped empower some of these studies at the U of T that Jessica helps lead. And I've said this many times, it's a bit corny, but we the North should be more than just the Raptors slogan on a playoff run. We should, as a country, really champion uh, Northern issues as part of the DNA of our country and as part of our prosperity and security as a country. And part of the reason I say we've been lacking a, a strategy in recent years is there's been a number of decisions made by the Trudeau government. I don't want to get too political on a podcast. I, I try and not do that on mine. But there's been several things done that have actually undermined opportunities in the Arctic, whether it was uh, Mr. Trudeau signing an exploration ban without any consultation at all with, with uh, Inuit, uh, Indigenous, or territorial leaders, whether it was uh, a decision not to modernize NORAD uh, in the North and the North Warning System until just recently, um, at a time that the last decade has seen massive militarization by Russia in, in their part of, of the Arctic region. So there hadn't been a real coherence. And I think the only two governments in our history that have actually had a coherent 
policy on the north was the the Diefenbaker government and roads to resources and and the establishment of a lot more presence of the federal government in the north and the Harper government. And whether it was the road to Tuktoyaktuk, whether it was the Canadian High Arctic Research Station, CHARS, which I've had the good fortune of visiting, whether it was the naval refueling port in Nanasivik, which is still not complete because of the complexities of infrastructure, there was a sense that we needed to do more. Um, indigenous reconciliation also needs to have aspects in the North and respect the peoples there. So given the immense challenges of building out infrastructure capacity in uh, Northern regions because of, of lack of infrastructure to get things there, you have to have a long-term multi-decade strategy that in my view needs to be bipartisan. It can't be started by the blue team and ended by the red or or vice versa. There needs to be a long-term vision that incorporates both security, respect for uh, indigenous reconciliation and 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 jurisdiction, but also has opportunities for economic development and and other aspects. And that needs a, a strategy. And and Jessica and I spoke about that on my podcast. And our committee study at the Foreign Affairs Committee a few years ago really looked at that as well. And I was proud that both the Michael Levitt, the chair, a Liberal MP, and myself worked hard to make it a unanimous report of all parties. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point that it should be a bipartisan slash nonpartisan issue, uh, seeing as it is something that affects all of Canada. Um, so I was wondering, is there an issue or a set of issues that stand out as most pressing uh, to you, or or is it all sort of as important? Well, for me, and, um, you know, Andrew being from the region, I'd love his perspective as well. But I, I do think right now, two top priorities are there. Uh, our security, because of uh, Russian militarization, we've seen the, the, the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia about half a year ago, we border Russia. We have continental shelf uh, conflicting claims right now. A few years ago, Russia did a stunt by erecting a, a flag at the, the bottom of the Arctic uh, Ocean to, to claim jurisdiction. They've got more ice-breaking capacity in one of their ports in, the, in their Arctic region than we do in our entire domestic uh, uh, Coast Guard and, and uh, Royal Canadian Navy uh, inventory. So I think the short term, we have to very quickly enhance and invest in the North Warning System, uh, establish complete uh, uh, collaboration within NORAD with the United States. And then I think the second priority in the short term is what I've said, uploading infrastructure opportunities to Ottawa. I think there is not enough tax base or capacity within the three territories to build up proper port, proper aerodrome, proper road construction. So I view all of those investments of the federal government being related to sovereignty. Therefore, the federal government should be in charge and should, should pay for all of that critical infrastructure, which I think needs to be accelerated for the economic well-being of, of everyone that lives in the North, including Indigenous peoples. 
So uh, to bounce over to you, Andrew, um, do you agree with uh, with Aaron or do you think that there's other issues that are the most important at the moment? I, I, I do broadly agree. And, and I know I know we could we could disagree agreeably if, if we if we did, if we had to. But um, I, I think that the, the broad direction um, that that Aaron O'Toole is just describing is is accurate. I think to, to that, I would, of course, add um the importance of of equity gaps, both both as as something that matters intrinsically, but also as as a national security threat. Um, you know, here we are on a on a NATO Association podcast. Um, you know, the, the the further invasion of of Ukraine by Russia has been has been a game changer in international affairs, in Arctic geopolitics. It motivates a reprioritization of security and defense issues, um, and I and I hope it also motivates all of us to do what we can to get our house in order. Um, equity gaps are a national security threat um, to social, political, and economic stability. And I I live in a place where there is a 10-year life expectancy gap between Inuit and, and all Canadians. Oh, wow. Um, a 15% unemployment gap, a $60,000 a year income gap, um, between Inuit and 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 non-Inuit living in the Inuit homelands, um, about forty percent of Inuit Inuit Nunungat live in crowded homes. These these create some. I mean, these these are not abstract statistics. They 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 really are life and death um, issues. They're also fault lines that create avenues of vulnerability to to foreign influence, um, and 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 create risks to to governance um and so i think i like, guess as, as we continue the conversation and we think about geoeconomics we think about canada's critical mineral strategy we think about mineral development um industrial strategy that that is the foundation of building social and economic rights um or, or, or achieving them i should say um all of all of these things are closely intertwined um and yeah and again always good to remember that they're not they're not abstract ideas. They're they're ideas that are that are um, of the highest stakes for people who who live within within Arctic Canada. Yeah, let me jump in on that, Kate, because I think Andrew highlighted something that I think is critical. Um, those gaps um, are criminal. You know, we we should not be satisfied with anyone in this country, whether they live in the north, south, east, or west, to to have determinants um, so different than someone elsewhere. And I think um, one of the things we we need to do better, and I think discussions like this help accomplish that, is making sure that people in southern parts of Canada understand these gaps, both economic, health-wise, um, and are open to, to fixing them. W one thing I've been struck by when I've spoken to Inuit leaders, particularly ones relate in in leadership roles whether with a band or with a, a development corporation <clears throat> that has net benefit to the to the peoples whether through direct settlement or through long-term uh development is they dislike the notion that the arctic is a park um you know they would often say we are not a park we don't live in your park that you want untouched we care deeply about our land. It's 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 part of their their DNA and their culture, 
Uh, so they want to be trusted to develop it uh, responsibly so that they can have opportunities to, to share elements of the traditional way of life along with providing opportunity for their kids. And those gaps need to be addressed through responsible um, development that puts Indigenous, Inuit, uh, First Nation leaders in the driver's seat. And as I said, on our, our major tour of, of the Arctic, I was struck by in you know Western, Eastern Arctic, didn't matter. So many of these leaders said, we are not a park for the people sitting in downtown Toronto. We have lives, we have aspirations, we have needs. And I think Andrew's uh, reminder to us of how we're not meeting the needs currently really should be part of the long-term strategy that touches on economy, security, infrastructure, but also well-being. Yeah, I would agree with both of you. The human security um, aspect to Arctic security, I think, is so important and uh, is often overlooked, uh, unfortunately. Um, so speaking of um, security uh, in terms of infrastructure and in terms of um, equity uh, in, with Indigenous peoples and Northern peoples being able to have equitable services as the rest of Canadians, uh, a domestic issue that that is being mentioned more and more is the lack of affordable living and modern infrastructure uh, in Canada's Arctic. Um, just this month in August 2022, the city of Iqaluit uh, declared a state of emergency because of a water shortage that has reportedly been affecting citizens since 2018 there. So I'll go back to you, Andrew. Um, as a resident of Canada's Arctic, can you speak a bit about how infrastructure and the price of food and housing uh, directly affect citizens there? Yes. Um, earlier, so I, I'm I'm a new parent. Um, earlier this year, we had a water crisis in Iqaluit that that continues in in a in a different way now. Um, earlier, it was a contamination issue that resulted in in several months of of non potable water uh, in Nunavut's capital city, um, and now we we have um, an acute shortage that's led to a declaration of a of a state of emergency within Iqaluit. Um and so we were you know each of those uh, you know affect us affect us in unique ways for us we we were collecting water from the river um again in, in one of Canada's capital cities um th thankfully there's been some really concrete measures um because of leadership by by the municipality by the territorial government by by Inuit organizations um to close that gap and and fix this this infrastructure but it really is an acute on chronic situation right there's been years of underinvestment um and we certainly have the genius to to resolve each of these issues um and and you know to build a robust and secure um water water system that's just one example of of you know vulnerable critical infrastructure at baseline that we can we can help close equity gaps by 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 investing in um you know housing absolutely is another one um you know the the the, the safety and integrity of of the electrical grid um you know Nunavut is 100% reliant on diesel energy um so it's all imported by ship um, you know, thankfully we've got, we've got robust systems to, to ensure the security of that supply, but there's, there's an intrinsic vulnerability built into that, um, that energy system. So these are each parts of, of, you know, the infrastructural anatomy of, 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 of where we live. And again, like, you know, chronic vulnerabilities that, that increase the risk of having an acute breakdown. There, there's no reason why in, in, 
in, in 2022, we should have a capital city in Canada um, having having a water emergency. We, we, can, we can fix that. Yeah, agreed. Um, so have you seen any new projects uh, being created to tackle these issues um, close to where you live? Yeah, so, so there, there was a, a major announcement this year um, uh, for, to, to, to build a new water system in Iqaluit. Um and and that that should be that should be applauded. Um, and I think kind of zooming out a little bit since 2017, there's been a real a real shift in the way that we do governance in northern Canada, you know, from only a provincial territorial federal dynamic to having, for example, the Inuit Crown Partnership Committee, where the Inuit Crown relationship can be addressed directly at a, at a prime ministerial cabinet level with with Inuit leaders setting common agendas. Um, you know, th these these are things that definitely are 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 things that we should celebrate, and again, help us get ahead of the curve of of particular crises. Again, like the the, the stakes are high; they're they're higher than just for um, you know our own populations, our own regions. We want to make sure that we're we're um, a society and a country that is that is working optimally given the competitions that are that are in front of us globally. Mm, so. Aaron, um, do you know of current government initiatives or programs that are targeted at creating this needed infrastructure that uh, Andrew's mentioning and reducing the costs and risks of living up north? Well, what was interesting, we um, we ran on a number of them in the election, which was about a year ago right now, uh, in terms of providing more support for people living in the north. And we were actually adjusting the northern um, border to actually allow people a little more south, but clearly in northern and, and more isolated areas of the country to qualify for some of the tax programs, uh, helping people in the north. Certainly, we also wanted to to fix nutrition north. Um, I remember, and, and Andrew and his family would see this every day, um, when you travel to Iqaluit and go into a little grocery store there, you are blown away by the cost of the of the food. And so there needs to be a subsidy. How it how it applies for more and more nutritious food, I think is is important. Um, and then infrastructure, I think I, I'm now hearing a willingness on the part of the Trudeau government to invest in North Warning. Um, all of this could have been done years ago. This is my my frustration. Uh, many of the Americans, including the Alaskan Senate uh, de or congressional delegation, we're asking why Canada was taking its foot off the gas when it came to uh, development and security issues in the north. So we're now making up for a number of years of lost time. Um, the The challenge with the north, whether it's food, whether it's housing, as you were discussing with, with Andrew, uh, whether it's capacity of the municipalities, is everything is more expensive, more complex, and takes a lot more time. So the more the federal government can tailor make housing and, and other programs specific for the North, um, the better. And the more they can, as I said, offload some of the costs uh, other levels of government are currently bearing, I think that allows more capacity building. And what should be of interest to folks listening to the NATO Association podcast, I think everything we do to solidify our sovereignty and our capacity in the North relates to defense. So we could actually take some of this social infrastructure spending and attribute it to our NATO 2% target. Um, so it, it actually could help us 
meet our obligations on the world stage as a leading mental power like Canada should be doing while helping address some of the, the gaps uh, that Andrew uh, already outlined and, and some of the challenges inherent with development in the North. And if I can just add to that too, like when we when we build port infrastructure in Arctic Canada, that's an asset for for the Royal Canadian Navy. It's an asset for Canadian Coast Guard. It's an asset for our allies. It's also part of sound industrial strategy where it can serve a function, say for for um, repatriating fisheries industrial capacity. Um, you know, and 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 Aaron O'Toole is mentioning that the the historic investments in in NORAD capabilities. Um, you know, not only is this important for continental defense, um, for, you know, liberating assets that can be deployed elsewhere, um, but at, at $4.9 billion over six years, primarily, you know, through an Inuit-owned firm, Nasutuk, um, this, it is also, you know, part of, of a domestic development model. Um, so th these are things that we can, we can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, it's great to think about how it uh, developing the North can also be beneficial for security and sovereignty. So as you guys were mentioning um, with economic development, it looks like there's an area of investment that's being overlooked by Canada, but is being looked into by other countries, and that's resource extraction. Uh, Aaron, you were mentioning briefly how Prime Minister Trudeau uh, went so far as to announce that Canada's Arctic waters were off limits to new oil and gas projects. Um, so I was wondering, Aaron, how do you view the prospect of resource extraction in the Arctic? Um, that's a great question, Kate. And when we had our parliamentary committee study on the Arctic, the most comprehensive one, maybe ever, but certainly in the last generation. Um, I was struck by a former liberal senator from the North, Charlie Watts, who I'm sure Andrew knows, um, saying quite clearly that decisions made in Washington by the prime minister without consultation were a direct violation of the duty to consult uh, Indigenous peoples as part of development. Um, we are now a signatory to the UN Declaration, and we should be incorporating uh, Indigenous partnership and engagement, including Inuit and development corporations, in everything that is done. It doesn't mean that that is a, a barrier to development. And what Charlie Watt was saying at, at committee was, we need to be party and partners to these, these opportunities and uh, if we if we are not, we're depriving um, um, people in the north of their ability to to build out infrastructure, address those gaps that Andrew already highlighted. And we are also undermining our sovereignty itself because our federal officials were very upset whenever we would raise that the fact that some, countries don't recognize the Northwest Passage as being domestic Canadian waters, for example. But we have to live in the world as it is. And the United States actually stepped back under the Trump administration from its previous position of giving Canadians a courtesy before they transited that waterway. Um, so resource development and presence in the North done properly done with environmental and indigenous considerations at the heart of it also slowly build up our capacity and and our our sovereignty in in the north at a time that it's being questioned even by some of our closest allies 
certainly we talked about the buildup with Russia. And as you both probably know, a few years ago, China declared itself a near Arctic state, a, a diplomatic term that didn't exist until they used it. And they've transited and built capacity and likely seabed mapped uh, our Arctic during a tra uh, transit of the Northwest Passage. So we've got to get serious because with climate change, there's going to be uh, polar navigation routes for shipping in the Northwest Passage and the Northeast Passage, the Russian portion of the Arctic. So there's a use it or lose it aspect to what we're doing in the North. And I think as long as it's done responsibly and in deep partnership with Inuit and Indigenous uh, peoples, it's a win-win for all Canadians. So, Andrew, do you agree with Aaron's assessment or do you have another take on the issue? Uh, no, I, I, I do. And I, I, I'm happy to take my cues from uh, from Charlie Watt any day. Um, but I'll, I'll sort of add perspective. Um, zooming out, we're, we're in a, a moment of of renewed assessment around around big competitions with with um, primarily authoritarian adversaries and allies. We're thinking about our geoeconomic connections with other parts of the world. We're thinking about supplies of critical minerals. Um, zooming in very very practically, just up the coast from my hometown in Labrador, there's a there's a mine called Voices Bay Nickel Mine. Again, a, a, an important a geopolitically globally important um, mineral. And the development of that mine, I think, is in many ways a success story. Like I, I think about friends who would have had to move away for work um, if, if that mine didn't exist. Um, houses in my hometown that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for income from, from mining. And I think about the the income, the, the, the Inuit Impact and Benefit Agreement signed with the Nunatsiavut government that um, you know, facilitated really was was in many ways an economic foundation for Inuit self-government in in Nunatsiavut in Labrador. Um, so there, there's there's ways of 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 contributing to to you know that the, these 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 important geopolitical reassessments and shifts, while also building a sound um, you know human development foundation um, at 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 the same time, um, and I, I think. Yeah, the ability to zoom out and zoom in to these these individual lives and these big systems um, is is important for all of us to to be bringing with us. I think. Yeah, if I if I could add a bit to to that, and Andrew's perspective on Voises Bay has been very helpful as someone that that knows the area from from growing up there. I spoke to my former colleague Peter Panashway about the the Inu and and the community's slow. Um, embrace of responsible development and how important it is. I think right now, Canada has an opportunity to be an ESG leader on critical minerals uh, at a time where China and some other bad actors are trying to control supply of the lower carbon economy. You know, some of these lithium carbon uh, or, or cobalt, some of these minerals, whether they're they're rare earth or not, are going to help us lower emissions and, and protect the environment, but only if we have access to them. And I've for many years talked about Canada being an ESGI superpower, meaning environmental social governance and indigenous participation and partnership. 
this could be something that not only helps Canada and our allies have critical access to these tools of a, of a lower carbon future, but also in the process have economic reconciliation at the core of it, which if, if there's a partnership with Indigenous or Inuit peoples, there will be an enhanced level of attention to the environment and, and mitigating some of the aspects that come with uh, with resource extraction. So I see a real opportunity here if if we're uh, if we're serious and I, the Globe and Mail just had a really good column on it on the weekend and Canada could be a leader rather than a laggard. As both of you mentioned, aside from domestic security risks, Canada's Arctic faces a national security risk with a potentially aggressive Russia and an ambitious China on the world stage. After Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine in February, diplomatic relations were cut off between the rest of the Arctic Council, which is the intergovernmental forum that promotes cooperation in the Arctic that all Arctic nations are a part of, and Russia. Canada's relationship with China, another global superpower with a horrendous track record for respecting human rights, is likely to become strange as well, with the Chinese government ceasing contact with the U.S. about issues like climate change and running military exercises near Taiwan after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island nation earlier in August. So, Aaron, do you think that the government of Canada is doing enough to protect itself against the threat of Russia or China infringing on Canada's Arctic sovereignty? Um, I do not. And let me preface this by saying, hey, I'm the former leader of the Conservatives. I generally don't <laughs> praise the Liberals for a, a lot of things. It's not really in my DNA. But I, I will say I've noticed a difference, Kate, in the last number of months. Um, I have a great deal of respect for Minister Anand. I think she gets the challenges we're facing in the Arctic right now and the significance of the Russian threat uh, in the immediate term and the longer term challenges with China. But for many, many years, there was a complete disconnect from uh, the needs in, in, of the North to the point that uh, Operation Nanook, the annual Canadian Armed Forces mission in the North, uh, Prime Minister Harper and often uh, a large delegation, including Lorraine Harper and, and members of parliament and Leona Aglukuk would go and participate to send a message that the people and, and the issues of the North mattered, not just our military exercising. All of that, uh, all of those actions are watched closely. And uh, Prime Minister Trudeau stopped that tradition of sure there's a bit of flag waving to it but that's that's part of uh, having a presence and having the ability to exert sovereignty uh, in remote parts of our country um we we saw as i said earlier in in washington the prime minister signing a, an exploration ban in the north without any consultations we saw a uh uh, a diminishment of capacity for the Air Force in, in Yukon, more stumbling around the completion of, of Nana Civic. Um, all the while, Russia building up capacity and China exploring this near-Arctic state uh, position and becoming an observer at the Arctic Council. So I think we're being naive if if we think we can just ignore these issues. And I really do think support for our North and its peoples, including security and opportunity, needs to be uh, nonpartisan. It is such a challenging uh, part of, of policy development and is such a long-term 
uh, commitment before you start seeing reward and, and benefit for the peoples there, that it cannot be subject to the whims of a minority election cycle like we're in. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. So Andrew, although I'm sure you also have a stance on the last question, I'm going to ask you this one instead. Uh, do you think that diplomatic channels of communication uh, can be restored between Canada and Russia, even after Russia broke with the principles and values associated with the international rules-based order when they invaded Ukraine? I, I think the further invasion of Ukraine signals that Arctic regions are not insulated from, from global geopolitics. This, this idea, I think, of, of Arctic exceptionalism, of, 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 a, of an Arctic zone free from, from conflict um, is, is fundamentally shaken. And I, I think uh, diplomacy is always important. Our ability to speak with each other, to listen to each other, to understand each other, to align interests where we can. Um, but there, there's no question there's been an objective shift, right? Um, and uh, clearly a move towards working with partners with whom we have we have common interests um, and 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 common respect for um, for a rules-based international order for um, for for the principles that bind us as as Arctic democracies, as Arctic allies. Um, and so, so yeah, the, 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 the field has changed, um, and, and that's not unique to, to the Arctic as, as a, as a, as a region in the world, um, all over, we are reevaluating our relationships, reevaluating our, our, um, political and economic connections, um, to bring due care to those lines of connection and ensure that we have, um, you know, robust, strong systems that we can depend on and relationships that we can depend on. And also that we're aligned to respond to, to threats um, and, and, and competitive actors. You know, there are threats in the Arctic, to the Arctic and through the Arctic, to borrow the language of, of my, uh, my colleague, Whitney Lackenbauer. Um, some of those threats are already taking place, like interstate competition, already is present within within the Arctic space, below the threshold of armed conflict, uh, including in the information domain through foreign interference, influence operations, espionage, cyber attacks on vulnerable infrastructure. Um, and that, that, that was taking place before the further invasion. Um, it certainly is taking place now. And, and you know, for, for, for an individual within an Arctic state, like thinking about just you know, in in May there was a, a massive cyber attack, the fourth um, publicly discussed this year in Greenland, which meant that that primary care physicians and, and providers weren't able to access medical records for patients. Um, you know, uh, the government of Nunavut faced a cyber attack um, not not long ago. Uh, so these these are it's important that we that we be thinking about. Um, the security of our of our vulnerable infrastructure, of our social infrastructure, um, and and be working together with with our allies to to build um, strong and healthy societies where we can. But absolutely, the 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 diplomatic landscape is it's it goes without saying has has been changed. And I think I think what is remarkable for many people is just the degree to which that is real within Arctic diplomacy and Arctic geopolitics. 
Well, I want to thank you both again for joining me today in this excellent conversation. I think we have covered about as many topics as you can jam pack into about a half hour, 45 minutes. Uh, but we've talked about everything from human security to real physical security, uh, which you talk about in like international relations. So I think that it has been uh, fantastic. So Aaron, it's been a real honor and pleasure to speak with you. So thank you again. Thank you, Kate. And thanks for your continued policy advocacy on a number of important issues along with the NATO Association. I've enjoyed it. I've followed your advocacy, so keep it up. And Andrew, a real uh, real pleasure. You're uh, a huge asset for for the North, but to, to Canada. So good luck with the continued studies and with the little one. Thanks all around. It's it's a it's a pleasure to be here with you and um always always lots to learn. Yeah, and Andrew, uh, absolutely fantastic to hear from you and get your perspective on the topic. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this special feature podcast on security in Canada's Arctic. It has been an honour and privilege to interview both Dr. Andrew Bresnahan and the Honourable Aaron O'Toole about such an important topic. To see more of Dr. Bresnahan's work, check out the North American and Arctic Defence Security Network's website and publications. To hear more from Aaron, listen to the Blue Skies podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about the report Aaron referenced, look for Nation Building at Home, Vigilance Beyond, Preparing for the Coming Decades in the Arctic, published in 2019 by Canada's Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Development. This episode has been brought to you by the NATO Association of Canada. For more security and NATO-related content, go to www.natoassociation.ca.